it's hard to really describe for anyone who wasn't there. I'm sitting here looking up, you know, what is libido? It was part of who they were. It was this energy, this need to create and destroy at the same time. I've been listening to Nevermind all week, and I've felt mildly depressed all week because of it, I have to admit. I don't want to sound like I'm an obsessive Nirvana fan, but I am obsessed with the effect that this album had on culture. Hello, and welcome to the Untitled Gen X podcast a podcast dedicated to the pop culture that raised us. I'm Lori, a writer and pop culture lover who's thrilled to welcome best-selling author David Miena to entertain us as we swim naked into Nirvana's 1991 sophomore triumph, Nevermind. But before we get into the grunge of it all, I'd like to tell you a little about the generally amazing human, David Vienna. David is the author of four books, the creator of the CTFD method of parenting, and the genius behind The Daddy Complex, a parenting humor website where he chronicles misadventures with his wife and twin sons. In his eclectic professional writing career, he's penned everything from reality TV scripts to the horror podcast, Baron. His fifth book, Pretty Sure You're Fine, hit shelves this fall. Thanks for joining me on the pod, David. I'm really excited to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. um, I'm pretty excited to to dive into this topic. No pun intended. Dive in, swim naked. I mean, I I think that that's how that works with Nirvana. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, I've had so many requests to cover Nevermind. And I'm like, the big ones just, they're so big. Yeah. And I want to save them for someone who really has a true passion and knowledge and understanding of the impact Mm -hmm. of albums like this. So when you suggested it, I was so excited. (laughs) Yeah, it is daunting. And I I understand because it's kind of like saying, okay, we're going to do this first episode about the Beatles. And it's just like, it's too much. It's too much. It's so I get the trepidation, but I'm I'm here. We can walk through it. Uh, We'll probably stumble a lot, but we're going to, we're going to do our best to tackle what we can. We're going to try and cover the epic cultural impact of this band and what it means to our generation and the generations beyond. I'm going to keep talking until I run out of things to say. (laughs) Let me just start with, I think that Nirvana gets dismissed a lot by a lot of people, even people in our generation, but I do believe that they are as important culturally as the Beatles, as Elvis. So yes, it's scary to cover this topic. It is. And you know, Nirvana has been credited for popularizing the Seattle sound and introducing alternative music to the mainstream. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, caused like huge cultural shifts, economic shifts. Uh, You know, it's had a huge impact, but it's interesting because Reddit has a lot of opinions about Nirvana simply being a band that was just at the right place at the right time. Yeah. And I think, but I think that's part of it. It's not just talent, it's luck. I mean, every success, every genius that, you know, is out there, they say, well, it's not just that I worked hard and and had a skill for it, but there's also the luck of timing. And, and I think that's a Malcolm Gladwell said something about luck being a big part of genius, but, but yeah, it was the timing. It was, yeah, they were just a punk band from Seattle or Aberdeen or Olympia, you know, they moved around, but, uh, but yeah, the timing of it was probably the magic the magic key that made it all fall into place. And yeah, it did change everything. It did. It's, it's funny when, when I talk to people about Nirvana now, a lot of people roll their eyes, 
But what you said is correct. It really was a tidal shift, not just in music, but in the music business and yes. then in in fashion and commerce and everything. And, and that's why I, I equate them to the Beatles and to Elvis, because they, they did the same thing, you know, and, and it's hard to really describe for anyone who wasn't there and also hard to talk about people who were there and, and forgot what it was like. Right, right. And I know for you, you were a big alternative music fan even before Nirvana came on the scene. So yeah. can you tell me a little bit about that and then what your introduction to Nirvana actually look like? Yeah, I grew up outside of DC Okay, in Alexandria, Virginia, and I didn't know much about music, but a buddy of mine introduced me to some alternative music and that's what got me into it. And I, I you know, my favorite band back in the day was, was REM. And so I listened to a lot of them and uh, there's a station out there. WHFS was played alternative music, but nobody like my friends listened to them, but everyone else was listening to new kids on the block and things like that. And uh, so w- my friends, we all listened to you know, Joy Division and The Cure and okay. all that stuff. So we heard Bleach, you know, on HFS. Uh-huh. And we thought it was really cool, but HFS even only played it kind of during the hard punk rock hour or whatever, you know, so we didn't, it wasn't a lot. And uh, I think you and I had an email exchange about this, but I was saying that I got made fun of for the music I listened to uh, in high school. Okay. And I distinctly remember people like Camper Van Beethoven. I played a lot. And and I think when Pictures of Matchstick Men hit, I, I think that might have been post Nirvana, but like I was getting made fun of for stuff like that, that they would sing lyrics at me to make fun of me. But then when Nevermind came out, I'm not kidding. It was like overnight. Yeah. The same people that were making fun of me were like going to their concerts and I didn't drink back then. And I was so every time there was a party, I would make sure all the drunk jocks got home. Okay. I would drive them home. And the same guys that were making fun, fun of me for music. One time I was driving him home and I, I put in Nirvana and he was like, Oh, I'll play smooth like teen spirit. And like, he knew all the lyrics and all this stuff. And I was like, just a month ago, this guy was making fun of me. Right. And of course, like that was the only Nirvana song he knew. Right. Like right. it wasn't <laughs> right. like he dove deep into, right. into bleach or anything, but yeah. yeah. So yeah. you told me that you graduated high school in 91. Mm-hmm. When you're mentioning new kids on the block and stuff, that was late '80s. That that makes sense. That that's what mm-hmm. everyone was listening to, sort of in in your high school experience. That for in terms of pop music, anyway. I, I don't want to say that nobody knew what was going on in alternative music. I mean, REM was that I think out of time came out earlier that same year, and it yes. was getting a lot of radio play. Uh-huh. And so I think there was that's where the timing thing comes in. So people were they were starting to chart. I think you two had had some hits. Of course, but it was it was that that switch got flipped. I think that I think the the best way to kind of encapsulate the change is that Nirvana knocked Michael Jackson out of the number yes, one spot. They sure did. The year that that I think it was ninety two after Nevermind had been on the radio for a while. But the difference was that these songs, Nirvana, and then they dragged all these other alternative bands with them, REM not stuff. They all started getting played on pop radio. And that was the big difference because everyone was listening to pop radio, commercial radio. So every all the bands that I was listening to on that alternative station were suddenly being played on the rush hour talk radio drive time stuff. And that's what was really weird to see, you know, before it was just me and my my group of friends that were wearing, you know, ripped up REM shirts and, you know, stuff like that. And then suddenly right. everybody's wearing them and we we're like, oh, this is this is no longer ours. Exactly what you just said. This is no longer ours. It's this small thing that belongs to you and this subculture 
of kids Mm -hmm. and it feels really personal and it feels like it's just part of you. And then when it blows up and the jocks and all these kids that were, you know, singing new kids and Michael Jackson are now invested and involved in your bands. It feels it's like on the one hand, you're happy for the band. And on the other hand, you're like, no, but it's mine. And now it's going to be different and everywhere and overexposed perhaps. Yeah, there is, there is that element of this was mine and now everybody's got it. And and does that make it less special? And I think for like, for me, I had a harder time with that for, for bands like REM and the ones that I really kind of considered mine. Like when I I saw them on the green tour and it was at a stadium, but I think for Nirvana, it was kind of perfect. And I mean, obviously not for Kurt Cobain, but I think for culture, it was kind of perfect that they blew up and it became everybody's because it did become this kind of unifying thing to see footage of Nirvana playing these massive stadiums and things like that. I think that was what our generation kind of needed. We needed that loud, angry voice that everybody could say, yeah, for whatever reason, whatever, whatever way you grew up, whether you grew up like Kurt and, you know, kind of had a crappy home life or whether you just identified with that disaffected kind of apathetic anger that he voiced so well, I think it was a, it was a good thing that they, that that happened. So I didn't feel that I did feel that it was weird seeing all these people that I didn't feel like I had anything in common with suddenly being fans of alternative music, but the fact that it was Nirvana, I think for me, at least it made sense. Right. And, you know, I was probably one of those kids that you're talking about who was not a fan of alternative music until this came on the scene. So obviously the album came out in September, 1991. I really didn't know about it until 92, which was my sophomore year. And Prior to that, I mean, I talk about it all the time on the pod. I have a huge affinity for 70s music. So I'm Mm -hmm. listening over here to my 70s music slash my hair bands because Mm -hmm. I like a hair band. I I like a power ballad. I'm not sorry about it. I loved Skid Row. I loved Mother (laughs) Crew. I I loved, you know, Guns N' Roses, of course, but like Mm -hmm. I was into it. And so when this came on the scene, like my sophomore year, I was like, what is this? Everyone mm-hmm. was talking about it. You know, Smells Like Teen Spirit obviously was the huge single. And I, I'm sitting here looking up, you know, what is libido in a dictionary? <laughs> I didn't have Google. I didn't know what it was. Yeah. What are they talking about? What is this all about? Mm-hmm. I was that group, David. I was that group <laughs> that came to it after it blew up on MTV. So, yeah. That's okay. We welcome. We welcome you. It happens. And, mm-hmm. and of course, it's like, then I was really leaning in hard to like the Pearl Jam and the sound garden of it all. Mm-hmm. That, that mm-hmm. was where I felt like I most belonged in this genre. Yeah. But I mean, to listen to Nirvana Bleach, I think I'm just an old person because <laughs> I've been listening to Nevermind all week in preparation for this episode. And I've felt mildly depressed all week because of it, I have to admit. (laughs) And I went back to listen to Bleach and I was like, oh my God, like I can't, Mm -hmm. it's too loud. It's too chaotic. It's too whatever. And I'm talking to my husband about it. And he's like, well, Lori, I mean, that's just, that's kind of punk. Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's just what it is. I'm like, well, I guess I'm, I'm just not, I don't have punk roots like deep in my heart. That's not where I come from. That's okay. I I don't judge. You know, Like, give me some Simon and Garfunkel. Let's start there. I think that, well, I think also too, what's fun about what you're talking about is like, for me, 
my music journey was really weird because I, my neither of my parents were big music listeners. I went in the house I grew up in. The only records we even had were we had the Grease soundtrack, we had Saturday Night Fever, and we had Pac-Man Fever. And uh, for some reason, we had Sgt. Pepper, the Beatles album. Okay. So there was a time when I was um, I was going to private school and I hated doing it. And we were carpooling and everybody in the carpool had a Walkman. So I had a Walkman and I didn't have any music. So I recorded Sgt. Pepper. So I listened to Sgt. was kind of my first foray into music at all. Okay. But then because I didn't know much about music and didn't have any friends tell me I hadn't met that my friend yet that introduced me to alternative music. I just listened to, you know, Casey Kasem's top 40 because that was sure. what everybody did. And I wasn't really enjoying it. So then I started listening to oldies. But then when I found specifically punk, I was like, oh, this all sounds like oldies to me. Like the song structures are, they're the same structure as golden oldies. You know, so even the chord progressions are very, very similar. And the song structure is very similar. They're just, the punk songs are just louder and angrier. I actually really fell in love with pop punk, which was, you know, Green Day and those kind of bands, yep. um, which aren't always angry, you know, but they're, they're very melodic. And that's also now getting back to Nirvana, you know, Kurt Cobain said that, that never mind smells like teen spirit specifically, he wanted to write a pop song and that was his pop song. Yes, he did. He loved the Pixies. He loved the Pixies so much. He was like, I could have been in a Pixies cover band and been happy. And in mm -hmm. fact, when Dave Grohl first heard smells like teen spirit, he's like, this is a Pixies rip. We can't do this song. Yeah. This sounds exactly like them. And Kurt said, well, that's what I wanted. I was straight up trying to write a pop song, trying to write a Pixie song. Yeah. And that's yeah. what that is. Chris, uh, no, Selleck even said like, we're going to get, we're going to get called out for this because it sounds like a Pixie song. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, that's great. That's what he was going for. And that, they nailed it. Exactly. And I yeah. see you, are you wearing a black Sabbath shirt right now? Is this what yeah. I'm seeing under yeah. your flannel? Okay. I'm wearing an Elton John shirt, which has nothing to do with anything, but Cobain said his vision for this album was to sound like quote, the Knack and the Bay City Rollers getting molested by Black Flag and Black Sabbath. That was what he wanted. And that's exactly what I thought when I first heard it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, this sounds like. That's so funny. The way he describes his own music is so unique. And I can see that. I can see that. I mean, I'm sure he's being a little facetious, but it's, he's right. That's the thing about that makes Nevermind specifically, but everything he did after Bleach, it's hard to sing along with Bleach, but everything after you can sing along with. I mean, they've got melodies that you can sing to. You know? Yeah. It's funny because you were talking about metal and hair bands. Like I do consider Nirvana like the natural progression from that, from metal. And yeah, they were a punk band, but that makes sense to me. Punk bands all shaved their heads and had mohawks. These guys had long hair like the metal guys did, you know? True, yes. So I always felt like grunge, the reason that became a genre instead of just calling Nirvana punk is because they weren't really, they were kind of taking punk and raw and hair metal. And everyone always asks, why do, why do they call it grunge? I was like, well, it's not exactly punk, you know, and it's not exactly rock. It's right in the middle. On Reddit, someone said, I believe in the long used sentiment that Nirvana had that balance of hard enough for metalheads punk enough for indie underground, catchy enough for part-time music fans. And they topped it off with the teen spirit video, which could not be ignored. And so mm -hmm. it's sort of true. It had these elements that appealed to a wide range of music listeners. Mm -hmm. And so hence it exploded and it makes sense. It came around at the right time. It was what we needed at that time. 
there was a great moment. It was, a, I can't remember what it was, but it was some MTV documentary about like, you know, hair metal. And uh, one of the guys from Warrant had this great quote where he said they went into Geffen's office and behind his desk was a huge copy of their album cover and they were talking and everything. And then he said they went in a few months later and it was Nevermind was yep. the album cover behind him. And he said and at he that knew. moment, he knew that their career was over. No, I think that you was know. Janie Lane. And he said he knew, and I was a huge Warrant fan. And, <laughs> and so to think, you know, we're, we're, we're moving from Warrant to, to Nirvana. I mean, this, this is different mm-hmm. stuff, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I think the thing that appealed to me about hair metal was just, it was just, it was party music. It was just mm-hmm. like fun and drinking and, and, sex and drugs and it was just like good time celebration and grunge comes along and it's like heavy and it's frustration and it's anger at the man and it's disillusionment and it's angst and Mm -hmm. and distrust and it's all of these like heavier things that hair metal was just trying to gloss over with some aquanet and we all bought into it because it it felt good yeah I think it was needed though. He hated the title, but everybody talks about him being the voice of that generation. And I know I never really identified with hair metal. I do, I do love Guns N' Roses, I'll say. Fantastic. I don't know what's metal and what's hair metal, like where the difference is, but. Um, I mean, I, I think your hair metal is more like, like your big hair and your makeup. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like your glam metal. Yeah. Guns N' Roses was the first metal album I ever bought. Appetite for Destruction. Oh my God. So good. Yeah, so it's good. undeniably good, undeniably good. But I bought that and an NXS album on the same day. So like, oh, that's where my... Oh, so good. Yeah, I was a huge, I still am a huge NXS fan. Yep. And, th- and that's what's weird. Okay, so that's another good example of like the genre thing because NXS was being played on alternative radio. But if you listen to them today, they sound just like a, like a rock pop band. Like the totally. only reason they're being played on alternatives. Yeah. And I think the only reason they're being played on alternative stations is honestly, the only thing I can think of is because they were from Australia and nobody knew where to put them. You know, my, my wife, uh, when she was, when she was a teenager, worked at a record shop in LA and she said they had you two in the punk section because nobody knew where to put these bands that like they, they're clearly oh my God, they're from Ireland. Band. What do we do with them? Yeah. Yeah, what do we do? And she thought she thought it was ridiculous, but they didn't have any other section to put them in. So they were in the punk band, the punk section. Wow. Yeah. But I, I feel that way about NXS and like Midnight Oil and those guys. Like oh, yeah. they were playing alternative festivals, but knowing what we know now about music genres, I would probably not have, if I were a radio programmer, I would not have put either of those bands on, on an alternative station. But I'm glad they did because, you know, I remember going to see a festival that Midnight Oil headlined. And I was like, it was just all of us that listened to that station, all these kids from all over DC that just showed up to see Midnight Oil play. It's awesome. I have a friend, an early Gen Xer, 1965 Alex. He joined me on the Fast Times episode last season. He is probably the biggest Midnight Oil fan I know. And uh-huh. I think I know two songs. <laughs> I mean, that's that's my truth. It's crazy to consider that this album, though, was recorded for $65,000. It was recorded at mm-hmm. Sound City Studios, Sound City Studios in Van Nuys, mm-hmm. 65K. And look, it just changed everything. Right. And you know, Bleach cost them $600 to record. And oh that's what God. got them the deal. Yeah. So like, imagine that leveling up and, you know, we'll, we can dive into how all that fame affected Kurt Cobain and the other guys, but like, just the idea that they made one album for 600 bucks and the next one for, you know, thousands. And then it became this cultural movement. It's like, 
it really is. They talk about overnight success. It clearly wasn't overnight, but it was as fast as you can get to oh, yeah. from you know zero to 60. Absolutely. Yeah. In terms of track list, we're going to talk about four of these songs because they have videos. We're going to talk about Smells Like Teen Spirit in Bloom, Come As You Are in Lithium. But what's your favorite track on the album? I love singles. I, I wish I was one of those guys who like deep cuts, but I enjoy them when they're played. But I just, if if it's good enough for an A&R rep, I, I trust their tastes. <laughs> so I, I really, it smells like Teen Spirit. It's just. Really? I totally pegged you for the guy that was going to be like, you know, I like Endless Nameless. And it was, you know, <laughs> pressed on the, like the later release. And it was supposed to be on the back of this song. And I, I pegged you for that guy, David. I was clearly wrong. Yeah, you're wrong. I, I'm I'm such a sucker for them. I've never ever heard a single and gone, well, why'd they pick this song? It's always like, oh man, this is a banger. Like it's just they, it's like, yeah, that's the best one, of course. <laughs> yeah, I know. So of course you're gonna lead with smells like teen spirit. And I'm it's not to say I don't like the other songs in the album, but my God, it's just every time it comes on, I don't mind that it's overplayed. It's okay. It's just can go back and talk about, you know, Beatles and stuff like that. But some of those, you never, you never skip a Beatles song. You know, I'm never going to skip a Nirvana song, right. and, but the one that gets played the most, is smells like Teen Spirit. And, it's right. and you're not mad at it. You're okay with it, which I mean, it's known as the anthem of Gen X. Yeah. Yeah. It, it has earned that title. Have you heard the story of where the, where that title, that song came from? I did. I, I learned it for this episode. I did not already know this. Yes. Yeah. Tell me about it. If you know, I, I'd like to hear it in your words. One of the members of Bikini Kill, I guess. Yeah, if, Kathleen Hanna. Yeah, they were out drinking and uh, and did did some some debauchery, some vandalism, and then came home and she wrote "Kurt Smells Like Teen Spirit" on his wall in Sharpie. But it was a deodorant brand back then. It was a deodorant I used to wear. So when this came <laughs> out, I was like, "Oh, they're talking about the deodorant." But of course, yeah. <laughs> as you know. Kurt didn't know that that was a deodorant. Kurt didn't even wear deodorant. So he didn't even find out that she wrote Kurt smells like teen spirit in reference to his scent, but he just thought it sounded so cool. He's like, I'm going to write a song with this in it. I got to believe somewhere at like whatever company made the deodorant. There was some conversation where they said, Hey, can we license that song? Right. (laughs) You know, I would love to have heard that conversation. Oh my God. And they were probably like, hells yeah. Look at all this free advertising. Yeah, look how <laughs> look how popular this is. This is amazing. What's even what's even more shocking is that that brand went under. Like with that kind of <laughs> name recognition. What's wrong with you guys? Like what did you do? Did you just spend it all on blow? Like what happened? <laughs> Probably did. I yeah. don't know. It's so weird. <laughs> and okay, so I think this is a natural segue to talk about the video. Mm-hmm. So Nirvana had some shows at the Roxy in August 1991, and they handed out flyers to recruit extras for the video. Of course, the iconic video. We open on that amber lit smoky gym with that, you know, iconic Chuck Taylor shoe tapping. It's funny, like, I already feel like I've recapped this video because last season I did an episode on Weird Al, and we recapped Smells Like Nirvana, which Mm -hmm. is basically a frame by frame parody of this. So here we go. We see the cheerleaders are dressed in all black. They've got the Anarchy A on their chests. And here's a little bit of trivia about that. Nirvana wasn't happy that the director, Samuel Bayer, cast such beautiful women as cheerleaders. Bayer said, I scouted LA strip clubs for cheerleaders. I mean, I guess like as one does. And, mm-hmm. and Kurt didn't like them. 
And he said, I couldn't understand why he wanted to put unattractive women in the video. (laughs) In my eyes, the whole video was dirty. It's all yellows and browns. It was the opposite of everything I saw on MTV at the time. So he was just trying to pretty up what he thought was an ugly video. Yeah. Yeah. Well, (laughs) uh, thank God he didn't succeed. That all that imagery was just again, it was perfect for the song and perfect for that movement. You know, it was, you know, being in high school and seeing him, you know, the band and Kurt Cobain kind of mocking that experience to me. I was like, it was like Chef's Kiss. It was just perfect. It's exactly what I wanted to see, because I I hated high school, <laughs> and I knew that me and my friends all had similar experiences. But to see that, oh my God, this rock star had the same experience I did, and he's calling it out like that to me was fantastic. I love that video. To see the kids in the gym, mm-hmm. they've got their long hair. There's tons of flannel. Everyone's looking pretty alternative and grungy. And it, they don't look necessarily super happy to be there in the beginning. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, I can identify with this as a, as a high school student. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you saw the video? I don't remember the exact first time, but I remember the first few times I saw it, it was on 120 Minutes. Exactly. That's when it, where it debuted on 120 minutes, the alternative station, the the alternative program on MTV. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, what's funny to me is that like to think now that MTV even had to regulate the alternative stuff to just this two hour block. And then when Nirvana happened, suddenly it was like, well, I guess we don't need this anymore because it's everywhere. Yeah. And MTV had gone on to say later, like, had we realized what this was going to be like (laughs) the cultural zeitgeist of this and this video we wouldn't have put it on 120 minutes. We would have premiered it on prime time. We would yeah. have made an event out of it. We would have advertised for it, tons mm-hmm. of publicity. But no, it's just like, oh, here in your little in your little alternative spot. This is yeah. where you belong. Here you go, nerds. Yeah, Here's your music. <laughs> outcast. Here's your little <laughs> video. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so of course, in the video, we see the custodian, the infamous custodian that is also in the Smells Like Nirvana video. And this man is a star. He has a name. His name is Tony De La Rosa. Mm -hmm. And in addition to being an actor, he's actually a accomplished trumpet player. I will have you know. I did not know that. I did not know that. Shame that he didn't whip it out during the video. Right? I I feel like it could have belonged. You know, Mm -hmm. in in the Weird Al video, the kids at one point break out kazoos. And so I don't know why, why he couldn't have. Yeah. Not the trumpet, but okay. It smells like Chet Baker. Dave Kroll. <laughs> he, he's he's killing it behind those chaka drums, of mm. course. Yeah. And um, Kurt is in that iconic brown and green striped shirt. And he's singing directly into the camera to mm. us. And the students, they're in the bleachers. And soon things get a little crazy. There's some body surfing. There's some slow-mo mosh pit action going on. And the mosh pit stuff wasn't actually part of the original video. Hmm. The shoot was running really long. The extras were super bored. And Cobain had to convince the director to let them start a mosh pit. Mm -hmm. And so they did. But then they just, it started getting out of control. And they started to just destroy the stage. And one of the producers said, all the kids in the bleachers were drunk. And uh, the director said the day of the video shoot was pure pain. Kurt hated being there. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Have you been in a mosh pit? Oh my God. Yeah. I have so many injuries from it. (laughs) Yeah. The club where we went most in DC is called the 930 club. It's still there, but they've moved locations. But the old 930 club was this really tiny, like hole in the wall. But you know, that's where I saw bands like the Breeders. 
oh, in the, so the original good. lineup uh-huh. at this little tiny club. And like, I'll, we just saw great bands. But anyway, so that was my first mosh pit experience. And I didn't know what to expect. And at the time, back in the like 89, 90, um, you know, those little, I don't know if they're Chinese black slippers that you get at like, um, yes, uh, me and my friends were all buying them because they're like two bucks a pair, you know, so we would just wear them around. I wore those to a hardcore punk rock show and my feet got stomped on so much. So at one point I was trying to back out of the crowd. Someone stepped on my foot and my shoe came off and I couldn't go down and get it. I'm backing up to this crowd and I feel broken glass. Somebody (gasps) dropped the bottle or something. I didn't cut myself, but I was like, this could not be going any worse. I'm in the middle of a pit, mosh pit. People are slamming around. There's broken glass and I'm barefoot. So I backed out and I just I spent the rest of the show at the edge of the crowd. I never found the shoe again, went home barefoot. <laughs> but so then I, then I knew, okay, next time I'm wearing my combat boots. Yes. Good call. You know? So I, every time since then I've worn my combat boots, but I, I was a frequent mosh pitter all the way through college uh, until the last time I did, it was at a, uh, there's a punk band called 15. They played at my college town in Richmond, Virginia. And I went up on stage and I jumped and the crowd parted like the Red Sea. And I just hit the ground on my hip. No. And I, and like, I, it was so painful that I, I realized, I don't know, you know, I wasn't old, but I was like, you know, I'm, I'm getting too old for stage dives and mosh pits. So I, that was my last experience. You're like 19 and you're afraid yeah. you're going to break a hip. I know. I'm like walking around with a walker. Like, oh, you can get to have fun. That's badass. <laughs> now you had told me when we were messaging that you dropped out of college because you were in a band and you thought yeah. you were going to make it big like Kurt Cobain. Not only that, I'm not kidding. I'll try and explain this, but I genuinely thought I was going to be the next Kurt Cobain. And I don't mean like I was going to be like as big as him or as successful. I meant I'm going to have the same cultural effect as Kurt Cobain. I'm going to be that successful. So I dropped out of college and my band moved to Kansas City because there's a guy there who said he could get us a gig for the summer and that never manifested in the the band broke up. So I didn't make it all the way to Kurt Cobain. I think I didn't even make it to like Nirvana's first show. (laughs) Like we, I, I seriously thought we were gold. We were just, okay. What was your band's name? I had a few, my last band, which was the one I was in the most was called tethered girl. Tethered girl. And what kind of band was this? Was this punk alternative punk alternative on the lighter side? We weren't that angry, but we were very serious. I mean, we weren't like fun, like green day. Like our lyrics are very serious. Wow. Like right around then, like Weezer was really big. And so people kept comparing us to Weezer, even though they, I think are really lighthearted and jokey. Uh huh. Our lyrics are all about like, you know, starving children and things like that. So, um, like you were tackling social issues. Oh yeah. Like okay. we're going to solve the world's problems with music. <laughs> Hence your, your belief that you were going to have a huge cultural impact. I understand that. And now to be fair, I will just give myself a little, a little pass because my first college band, we did kind of have a lot uh, some local success kind of quickly. And okay. I was trying to get assigned, you know, much the way Kurt Cobain was like sending out letters to labels. I was sending out demos and we did actually get a call back from the label that Nine Inch Nails was on. Stop it. TVT, I think at the time. I don't remember what label it was. And I thought, okay, we've cut a this demo. This is it. We've got, we've got this uh, label wants to hear more. 
well, this is all we need to do is cut another demo and we're gold guys. And, uh, and we did another demo and it, our sound had evolved by then. And we sent it off to this guy. And I think it had evolved past the point where he cared. <laughs> so, oh my goodness. Cause our first demo was, was pretty heavy. And so I, it made sense that the nine inch nails label was interested, but then our second demo sounded more like the pixies and not like the heavy stuff, but the more like kind of pixies is either really heavy or kind of complex in a, deceivingly simplistic way and it was more that kind of pixie style and so never did anything else that band broke up formed another band that band broke up and then my last band which i think we were together for a few years i thought we were good i was clearly the weakest link in all those bands so. <laughs> is the music available online somewhere can we go oh, God, listen no. to it oh man it's funny i go back and listen to it now and i really so we have a we had a, a drummer's name was kiki she's great but she would sing backup like okay. like David Grohl does. Yeah. And uh, we had one label rep say to me that my voice was bad and not in a good way. And <laughs> we should think about having Kiki sing lead. And I was like, no, I'm the singer. There's no way. Like, I didn't even fathom like, oh, that's probably a good idea. <laughs> so now when I go back and listen to uh, the stuff, which I don't do often, but when I do, I'm like, man, I really should have not been singing at all. I, wow. And I could barely play guitar. <laughs> I, it sounds weird to say, I'm glad I dropped out and had that whole experience because it certainly taught me a lot more than college did. <laughs> but uh, uh, you know what? I have long believed that being in a band is like the ultimate group project. Like oh, yeah. it, it teaches you so much about how to problem solve and manage ego. It teaches you a lot. My stepbrother was in a band. He, my, my stepbrother was obsessed with Nirvana. Mm -hmm. And he was in a band called Pandemic, which <laughs> the irony, right? This if only the they'd 90s. stuck around. <laughs> they were, it would have been like, he was so ahead of his time. <laughs> and yeah, they were, they were heavy. And of course, I mean, that band broke up as so many do, but mm. it really does teach you quite a lot. That's yeah. an amazing story, David. Oh, well, yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's one I, I uh, usually tell after a few drinks. About like, yeah, let me tell you about the time I was almost the next Kurt Cobain. <laughs> Shit, I'm wearing flannel right now. I'm like, I, I could have made it, man. <laughs> I'm going to be that guy talking to my kids. Ever tell you the story? And they're, yeah, dad, you told us about the band. Okay. So this video obviously was a huge success. Like we were talking about, it won best alternative video at the 92 Video Music Awards. It's been viewed over 1.4 billion times on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. And I like to look at the comments on YouTube to see what people are saying about it. And um, someone wrote, this is my neighbor's favorite song, whether he likes it or not. <laughs> <laughs> and someone else said, imagine being a teen when this song came out. I would time travel to have been a teen and been able to listen to it for the first time. And I'm like, yep, neener, neener, yeah, we yeah. were. So we got to have that experience. It was very yeah. cool. It, it was. I mean, we joked about it, but it was magical. It was kind of like being in witnessing a cultural movement like that and being a part of it and, and yep. being in the midst of it. Yep. Nirvana dragged all these bands, you know, with them. And then suddenly like, you know, bands like Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, I mean, they'd been doing it for years, but then Nirvana hit and suddenly everyone's like, Oh, who are these other guys? And who are these? And like, and then that dragged traditional punk along. And that's why we got green day was the next you know big band that kind of rode that wave. Nirvana crawled so that Green Day could walk or whatever. It's Absolutely. And you told me you saw Green Day before they even had their big record deal. Yeah. And it, this is kind of parallel when we talk about this. This isn't ours anymore. Green Day was on Lookout Records out of Berkeley. 
California and just a great little punk label, you know, run by a bunch of little punks. And Green Day was coming to town to play this little club and all of us were going to go. But there were rumors that were circulating around the community that Green Day signed with a major. It hadn't been announced yet that they, they'd signed with Warner Brothers. So we saw them at this little tiny club and it was a great show. But and I think it was like a month later, like it was announced. And I remember there being discussions among the, the punks in this community, like, can we like them now? Like, are, is it okay that we still like Green Day or do right, we have, or have we them? sold out? Yeah, that actually was the moment when I got disillusioned with the punk scene, <laughs> you know, because I was like, well, do you guys like them? Well, yeah. Well, then what are you worried about? Like, who cares if they're on a major, you know? Right. It was nice to be a part of that scene, knowing that those bands were getting attention because of Nirvana changing the culture. Yeah. So you have twin sons. Yes. How old are they? 13. They turned 13 in November. Are they into Nirvana? Are they fans? Yeah. Yeah. Not only are they into Nirvana, but they they both play. So my son Boone plays guitar and my son Wyatt plays drums. Awesome. And you're the lead singer? <laughs> <laughs> I'm saving them that, that little <laughs> bit of pain. But uh, the music school they go to, they put them in a band with other students and then they book them a show. So they have to practice. So they've actually played shows. Oh my God, that's so cool. Yeah, you'll love this. Their first show they did was at this club here in town. I think they were nine oh, or I 10 or something. And they, and they played Black Sabbath. And my son got to do the opening lick, the Paranoid. And like, it was, just, it was like the proudest I've ever been. Uh, yeah. My wife's father, my, my father-in-law, he's a, he was a child prodigy guitar player. So mm. it's, it, it's in the blood. It just came from my wife's side of the family. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Okay. Let's talk about come as you are. It's that the low key kind of middle finger thing right? Uh, that I liked. Kurt wanted a lot of purples and reds in it. So it's a very mm -hmm. dimly lit video. It does have the tie in to the album art. It's mm -hmm. got that gun floating in the water. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we see, you know, Kurt hanging on a chandelier at some point. There's mm -hmm. that dollar on the fish hook in the water. Yeah. It's a moody video. Yeah. It's funny. It's it's clearly they're, they're finding their way. Like in music videos back then where you could do so much with them. I remember always being upset when it was just the band playing except that's what they did for that video. But them playing was insane. You know, it was like, it wasn't just oh, people yeah. on stage. And it was like, that's that stuff in that video is stuff that he actually did on stage. So that chaotic swinging from the chandelier stuff. I mean, you've, you've seen live footage of them. It's I have. And, and even in the lithium video, it's a lot of just concert footage, right? Mm -hmm. It's live footage from the European tour with Sonic Youth mm -hmm. from a live show in Seattle. It's Kurt in his little cardigan being crazy on stage, you know, yeah. and, and jumping into drum sets and throwing guitars and smashing things and body surfing. And I mean, that's, that's what that video is. Yeah. Uh, whether, I don't know whose decision it was. I'm sure Kurt, I know Kurt conceptualized a lot of this stuff, yep. but like just the idea that like, let's just show people what the show is like. Yeah, just, exactly. You know, because there's no need to kind of flower it up. It's, right. it's already crazy enough. And the conceptual video that you're really talking about, I think is in bloom. Yeah, they look like they're in a 1960s variety show. That black and white video where the band is, you know, in their striped suits and their slicked hair. Yeah, it's about like calling out the fans that came to them, and he, you know, the jocks and stuff that were suddenly listening to them and stuff. And it's really funny that that whole song is a big middle finger to the people that were buying his. 
<laughs> so, it really was. I mean, the, the footage of the crowd, it's, you know, the preppy girls, you know, all mm-hmm. clapping and getting excited and the preppy boys. And, and these are, you know, the football players and the cheerleaders, and they're just all mm-hmm. going nuts for Nirvana. And of course, at some point in the video, Nirvana's, you know, they go from this clean cut look and, and <laughs> Dave Grohl in that blonde wig, like shout mm-hmm. out to that, um, to <laughs> them then wearing the dress dresses yeah. and destroying the stage. So yeah, yeah, it's great. It's that kind of that thing you can't contain. And, you know, my, my, my wife, when the boys were playing, they did play a Nirvana song in one of their groups, but you know, they were talking about a Nirvana smasher instruments. And she goes, wait, 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 I'm going to show you some who concert footage. And you can see, this is where this came from. And I, you know, clearly we all know Nirvana did not invent smashing their instruments, no. nor did the who, but they weren't doing it to be cool. They were doing it just because it was like this kind of statement of like, we're doing this and it's all a show and we are self-destructive. We're going to wreck this thing that we just used to give you this experience. And it was, it was all, I don't know, it was such a great statement about the, you know, impersistence of art and meaning versus not meaning. And, you know, you can look at it as I'm just being idiots and smashing their instruments and, you know, in a drunken haze of whatever. But I think it's also... It's, it was part of who they were. It was this energy, this need to create and destroy at the same time. Absolutely. And it kind of goes back to what naturally happened in the Smells Like Teen Spirit video, where not only is Nirvana moved to do this, it's inspiring their audience to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. The, there's a story about Nirvana's guitar tech, like the guy that was on tour with them after, obviously, after Nevermind came out. And... Uh, Somebody, some reporter made a comment about like how cool it is that they can, you know, smash guitars and have new guitars every night. And the guitar tech was like, no, 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 he, we only have like two. I have to rebuild his guitar oh, every shit. night. And by the end of the tour, he was like literally like begging for parts to fix the only two guitars they had. That poor guy. Give that guy <laughs> a Grammy. Yeah. That's wild. I love that story because nobody thinks about that. Like you don't think about the poor. <laughs> The end of the show, the guitar tech's back there going, God damn it, not again. You know, did you see the show they did where I think it was an MTV award show at the end of the song, Chris Novoselic threw his bass up into the air and he was trying to catch it and it hit him in the head no. as they're walking off. And uh, you, if you go back and find the footage and you'll see as they're walking off, he's clearly like half unconscious because he's stumbling around. Oh my and God. later on they showed him on the news and he had this huge gash in his head. Like, <gasps> but that's just who they were, you know? Wow. <laughs> I feel like we should talk at least for a minute about the cover art to the album mm-hmm. because it, it's in the news a lot lately. So of course, you know, the album cover art features the baby swimming after the dollar bill and the baby is naked. And um, originally Kurt Cobain wanted to have an image of a water birth on the cover because he was fascinated by water births. Mm-hmm. Okay. But the label was like, that is way too graphic. So let's have a photographer take a picture of a baby in a water class. So of course that baby was Spencer Eldon. And to this day, he's still swimming after that dollar. Yeah. <laughs> he's recreated yeah. the album art so many times. And then he goes and he's trying to sue. Yeah. And yeah, well, I mean, the case was recently dismissed, but I think he'll file again. So allegedly i don't know i don't want to get sued here by him either so my wife and i talk a lot about like the people that have that one thing you know that's the only thing that they have that they'll try and ride it for as much money as they can for as long as they can and you know on the one hand it sucks on the other hand i mean like that's all he's got i can't blame him i mean if i was the nirvana baby 
I would be telling everybody all the time, every day, hi, yeah. we just met. Did you know I'm the Nirvana baby? Just like have the album with you? Yes. Like, see me? the resemblance? Yeah. Here. Yeah, it's wild. Let me get naked and then you'll, then you'll see the resemblance. <laughs> uh, the, so this is a just total coincidental story, but my wife and I actually met the guy who designed that cover down here in LA. Really? And uh, we were over at there, he and his wife. Yeah. And we were over at their house one time. And first of all, I've never seen a, I'm going to say graphic designer because I think he was a graphic designer at the time. He's clearly now like a creative director or something, but okay, that guy's house was freaking insane. It was so beautiful and so big. And I, at one point I looked at my wife who is also, she's also a creative director. And I was like, can you believe this? And she went, he designed, never mind. I mean, this is never mind money. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. But uh, he was telling us about the design of that album. And originally it didn't have the dollar bill on the hook. And I, I think he said he was the guy that jokingly said, what if we put a buck on it and or whatever? And that and Kurt was like, oh, yeah, that, that's that's perfect. So it originally didn't have that money on the hook. Oh, what a scoop, David. I love yeah. it. <laughs> it was a really surreal moment. Also, this is just a weird coincidence. I also met the guy who designed the Foo Fighters first album cover, too. <laughs> like just I've met all these like weird people that are connected to this topic. Wow. But he, he's a designer up in Seattle. And at the time I thought, well, I could be a graphic designer. And some friend of mine put me in touch with him and uh, he very graciously welcomed me into his home. And I knew he had done the Foo Fighters cover, but then we're talking, I look up on the wall and he had the gun, the ray gun from the Foo Fighters yeah. cover on the wall. And I was like, holy shit. Like, that's so crazy. That was before I met the guy who did Nevermind. I mean, like you can meet the guy who designed a band's covering oh yeah i like that album whatever but to meet those two guys the impact that they had in my life i just loved being in the room and kind of soaking in the the presence and the, the information it was great and look now you're on this podcast it's like kismet <laughs> i i will say this is this is perfect because i have all this pent up like i it's really just like i don't want to sound obsessed if i were to list my favorite bands of all time i don't know if the top five i don't know that nirvana would be on it but but it's also because they don't belong on a list like that. They're different, you know? So uh, I don't want to sound like I'm an obsessive Nirvana fan, but I am obsessed with the effect that this album had on culture. Uh, and it's, uh, like I said, it, it is just a great album. So there's that too. And terrible if the album sucked and it created this culture. Right? <laughs> like, really? It was this one? Why? Oh, oh, yeah. Nice. And I mean, obviously the album was a tremendous success. It sold 30 million copies worldwide and it still remains one of the best selling albums of all time. Yeah. And, and the fact that all so many of those songs translated to the unplugged episode they did an album. I mean, that says something about the songwriting that the kind of strength of the songwriting there. That it's still there. Even when you strip away all like sort of the mayhem and madness of it all yeah. at the core. It's, they're yeah, still the good. They're still, still there. Good songs. Yeah, absolutely. Nirvana biographer Michael Azrad said, Nevermind came along at exactly the right time. This was music by, for, and about a whole new group of young people who had been overlooked, ignored, or condescended to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, and that was it. It's pretty dead on. Yeah. Yep. The, the fact that this guy was giving voice to that and the realization, like you knew you're not alone. Yeah, I knew I wasn't alone in the world. You know, there are plenty of people who've had similar experiences, but to then see it, not just, not just see someone else going through this, but then voicing it and then having everybody else go, oh my God, I didn't know that, that people felt this way. 
And it's also speaking to this other part of my life that has nothing to do with it. It was this magic show of like connecting all these things uh, in, in a way that's really, really hard to do. And he did it so effortlessly. Yeah, I would agree with that. And and when you're young, it's so easy to think like, I'm the only one who feels this way, right? Yeah. But yeah. then when you see it gain so much momentum and people of all different walks of life are now connected to this common theme, you're like, wow, yeah. I thought I had you pegged. I didn't think that you felt this way that I feel, but there's more, it's deeper. Yeah. And of course, so the fame was a lot for Cobain. We've touched on that. And mm-hmm. he struggled with addiction and he suffered from depression. And he once said, when you're in the public eye, you have no choice but to be raped over and over again. They'll take every ounce of blood out of you until you're exhausted. And as we all know, Cobain was found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head in his Seattle home on April 8th, 1994. He was 27. Uh, Do you remember where you were when you found out? I do remember exactly where I was. I was in my car. And I had just pulled up to the, my college's like common building, you know, and I had two friends in the car and they broke in on the news on the radio. And when they announced it, the guy in the back seat screamed no and jumped out of the car and like ran off. And I remember it being like me and my other friend were just kind of shell shocked. But then this guy had this very visceral emotional reaction to it. And so I, I remember it very clearly. I remember my first thought was, we knew someone, every, every generation has this, you know, every generation has that, that hero that dies tragically. And I remember thinking, fuck, not him. It was in hindsight. And even in the moment, it was obvious, but it didn't make it any less tragic. I remember this was my senior year of high school. Uh, I was going on a spring break trip with my friends. It was just just us, no parents. And it was going to be this like crazy wild time and we're getting ready to go. And we find out, and I'll tell you, like, it really, it was somber as hell. I mean, this thing that we had been looking forward to for so long, we all get together and we just, just want to cry. It was shocking and, and not surprising like you're saying, but yet the most shocking thing in the world that ever happened. Yeah. I mean, we all knew that he was struggling. He had had an overdose. He survived it. But then this happened and it was just like, no, Mm -hmm. no. It's a shame when it's that that idea that this is inevitable. Right. Yes. That's what made it hard, at least with with Kurt Cobain, is that like, this is clearly where the story was going, but you hoped it wouldn't. Right. I've been watching that documentary about him, Montage of Heck. Oh, it's very good. It's heartbreaking too. I it's, know. I yeah, know. It's so good. But it's really, if, if anyone listening hasn't seen it, it really is kind of an unprecedented look at Kurt Cobain's life and what that struggle with that desire to be famous, but not wanting the fame, you know? Right. And that push and pull that he struggled with, he got it and then realized it didn't fill that void. And it's, you know, kind of an obvious story, but it's it's still sad. Oh my God. And you know, what's so tragic too about Kurt Cobain is that, and I think they touch on this quite a bit in that documentary was that he suffered from chronic pain Yeah, from chronic stomach pain for so long, truly, truly debilitating stomach pain. And so I think this was one of the big reasons he ended up 
you know, struggling with addiction was he was just trying to manage physical chronic pain and it's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. I, I know there's also one point in that documentary where Courtney Love says that his goal that he stated to her was he wanted to earn $3 million and then just live the rest of his life as a junkie. You know, that chronic pain that led him to start doing heroin, clearly the heroin, it became more than that, obviously, as addiction does. Right. To even at that point for him to say at the height of his success that his goal was something that was clearly going to end in his death, even he knew, uh, that's that's tragic. That's so sad. This this might it's just an interesting side note, but the guy who uh, Matt Reeves who did the Batman movie that's coming out, the new yes. one, he said he listened to Nirvana a lot while he was working on the pre-production and you know the script and all that stuff. And he said he sees this iteration of Batman like Kurt Cobain, uh, which is why "Come as You Are" was used in the trailer. And he said that this Batman like Kurt Cobain has an addiction, but his addiction is to revenge. And I thought that was such a cool way to approach that character, you know? Yeah. Go, go watch the trailer. They use the song really effectively. Yes. And I was like, Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I thought that we could play a little game here and um, I hope I don't offend anyone. Let me tell you the backstory about this. So I was reading my son, my 19 year old son, a quote from Kurt and before I could tell him that it was Kurt Cobain who said it, he goes, oh, is that a Kanye quote? <laughs> and I was like, I have failed as a parent. I know. I know. Okay. So so I thought we could play a game called Kurt or Kanye. And oh, geez. I know that you know this is not to be disrespectful of Kurt. Everyone be cool. Mm-hmm. I love Kurt Cobain, of course. And I know Kanye or Ye can be really... Um, controversial, if you will. I'm just going to leave it at that, but I'm going to read you a couple of quotes and I'm going to see if you can nail these. Oh, geez. Let us begin. Are you ready? I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. As ready as you'll ever be. Yeah. Okay. Rap music is the only vital form of music introduced since punk rock. Mm. Kurt or Kanye? I'm going to say Kurt. Kurt. Ding, ding, ding. Okay. Good job. Good job. Okay. I'm really interested in smells. I'd like to own a perfumery someday. Kanye. Kurt. What? I know, right? Okay. He who did not know what Teen Spirit was and had had never worn Teen Spirit gear. But okay. At least we know what his perfume would be called. Right. right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. People never change. They just become better at hiding who they really are. God, could be either. I'm going to say Kanye. It is Kanye. Ooh, okay. Yes, yes. What are the prizes, by the way? Uh, oh, I don't know. A boost to the ego? Okay. Is all right, that, that's good. I think that's that, all I can offer. That's that's good enough for me. Okay. All right. Second albums, man. They're even scarier than the first ones. Uh, I'm going to say Kurt. It was Kanye. Dang, and the was... reason the reason I chose it is because we never ever hear Kanye, yay, say anything other than I'm the greatest and I've got it under control. So yeah, the fact yeah. that he said it's even scarier than the first ones, I was like, ooh, that sounded like Kurt. I, I chose hard quotes. I will yeah. say that. You know, it's all by design. I'd rather be hated for who I am than loved for who I am not. Kurt. Kurt. Mm. You did well, David. Oh, okay. That Yay. was it. That is the end. Well Fantastic. done. How many, how many did I miss? I missed one I or two. I think you missed 
two. I missed two. The perfumery. That was yeah. a that was a tough one. So from Nirvana to Vienna, oh. <laughs> I'd like to talk about you and what you're up to. Did you like that segue? Oh, I worked it's good. on yeah. that. Yeah. I didn't see that coming. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> so I stated in the intro that you are the author of four books mm-hmm. and it's actually five coming out this fall. We'll, we'll get there. Okay. So your first book, Calm the Fuck Down, the only parenting technique you'll ever need. I feel like this was written for me. I was a hysterical <laughs> parent. So can you tell me a little bit about Calm the Fuck Down and how that came to be? Uh, yeah, it was... Uh... Where to start? I have a I have a Tumblr that I've actually been maintaining for more than a decade, but I kind of jumped on the bandwagon early, right before it blew up. I rode that wave. Anyway, I wrote a post on there that went viral called the CTFD method. CTFD, calm the fuck down. Calm the mm-hmm. fuck down, and it was it, it was only like three hundred words. It was very short, but it went crazy. And then uh, I told my agent, I was like, maybe I should turn this into a book really quickly threw together a proposal and became the book, which is, I, it's basically taking scenarios that parents could panic about uh, new parents and telling them the absolute worst case scenario that could happen to the point of ridiculousness and then why they shouldn't worry about it anyway. You know? Uh, so yeah, it was, it was a fun kind of first foray into that world. And then that uh, led to other books with the same publisher and with the same voice. And I was able to kind of, carve out my own little niche, like humorous nonfiction. Right. So are you just like, seriously, the world's most chill parent? God, no. Oh my God. I have no chill (laughs) because I have no, like I have negative chill and I, I am a disaster of a human. And (laughs) and the fact that this literally your fifth book, I mean, I'm, I'm skipping a bunch of books. We'll go back. Pretty sure you're fine. This Mm -hmm. is coming out in the fall. Pretty sure you're fine. Colon the stress-free and healthy way to be stress-free and healthy. And it says it's a gift book for overthinkers. Hello, it me. And hypochondriacs. Hello, it me. Who have gotten a little too chummy with Dr. Google. Hello, it me. And could use a voice of reason and their free ear. This is coming out in fall 2022. (laughs) I'm thinking like, calm the fuck down. Pretty sure you're fine. Like, David is the most chill, rational person on the planet, but you're telling me, no, this isn't true. No, this is, there's a lot of do as I say, not as I do. Ah, yes, yes. Yeah. No, I, I, I like to think that I'm chill, but I do have, you know, I have my moments where I blow up. There's been a long battle in my house that my wife has finally given up on of me not cussing around my kids. <laughs> it's tough. I struggle. Yeah. yeah. But she, I think there used to be early on, uh, you know, let's watch the language then it became like, well, let's try not to do it so much. And now we just don't, we just don't even bother anymore. The boys know. Now you're like, fuck it. Yeah. I'm just like, what the fuck are you doing, man? <laughs> uh, but they told me, they told me once they, they didn't like it when I yell at them, you know? Okay. Uh, but then if they don't listen, I would say, Hey, you got to do this. And they don't listen. Hey, you got to do this. They don't listen. So then I, like, Hey guys, and like, you know, my voice would get louder and they say, they don't like it. So then I started, okay, you got to fucking do this. And they said, well, we don't like it when you cuss. And I said, look, I got to get your attention one way. So I'm either yelling or I'm cussing. You got to pick one. Oh, you're shaking a maraca. So yeah, they're listening to you. I'm going to do a little, yeah, I'll do a dance and get your attention. Yeah. So I think, I think we all just kind of quietly landed on, I cuss. <laughs> That's how I get their attention. Dad cusses. Yeah. Yes. So you've also written, uh, let's see, drinks for mundane tasks, 70 mm-hmm. cocktail recipes for everyday chores. This came out in 2017. 
Are you like our mutual buddy Wit? Were you a bartender? Are these your recipes? Did you come up with these? Tell me about it. Uh, I'm not a bartender, but I am a frequent bar patron. Oh, and, yes. Uh, okay. I came up with the recipes. It was really just kind of tweaking existing recipes and playing around. Fun. That's the one book that uh, was pitched to me by the publisher. It was okay. they, they had this idea and thought my voice would go well with it. And because it's got some research involved. I mean, drinks for mundane tasks. We all hate mundane tasks and we all like drinks. Yeah, We all yeah. would rather be drunk doing mundane tasks. I think when they contacted me about it, they were like, so we want to do a cocktail book. And I went, yes. And like, that was, I didn't even... <laughs> I didn't even have to hear the rest of it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it was it was fun to write. And you know, the the fact that they let me kind of run with, you know, the the recipes and the the sidebars and the information. It was a lot of fun. That's so cool. And then came Are We There Yet? 36 eye rolling flow charts from the wonderfully weird brains of children in 2018. Mm-hmm. Tell me about this. This looks so fun. Honestly, of all the books I've written, that was the most challenging because it couldn't be written on like you typically write. I had to do it on, I had these like big sheets of paper. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I was actually mapping out flow charts and I would literally like take a screen, a photo of them. And that was how I turned in my book. I did some of them on a flow chart generator where I could uh-huh. edit, but uh-huh. mostly it was me like writing the jokes and connecting lines and taking a photo and sending that to the publisher. So it was a really weird way to write a book. And it was also one of the few where my kids kind of chimed in with jokes and stuff, but it was great. I mean, the publisher had the idea that that cover folds out and it's a poster of one of the flow charts, which was pretty fun. That was their idea. So cool. Yeah. I love that. And then came Anyone Can Be President, the super smart guide to being the ruler of the free world. And this came out in 2019. Mm -hmm. And this is a book for anyone or for kids specifically. Uh, It's for anyone. And I have now, after that book, learned my lesson, the parenting book, the president book, and the, the flow chart book, there was discussion of getting them in that, like the scholastic, like book sale thing yeah. for kids. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, except I mentioned Bill Clinton's penis in that one. And they're like, dang it. I mentioned marijuana. I mentioned a penis. I'm like, uh, I, I don't think we can sell that to kids. So I, that, I learned my life. But anyway, so it is for anyone. <laughs> but I tell parents, if you're going to give it to your kids, warn them about the penis. <laughs> I think that's a call to action to to all parents. Yes. And then in 2020, you released the six episode horror podcast, Baron, Mm -hmm. and it was really successful. Tell me about that. Why a podcast and not a book? Uh, I actually, it started as a book. Oh, it did. Yeah. It's, it didn't come to fruition. It was a book I was trying to write. It's literally an idea I had when I was in like junior high or high school and I've hung on to it. And then I kept plugging away, like maybe it can be a book or maybe it should be a screenplay. And then the pandemic happened and everybody got quarantined and I literally had nothing to do. So I said, well, maybe I should just do it as a podcast because it's really only a couple characters. And I, at the time I had a script that was kicking around and they were talking about doing it as a podcast. So I thought, well, this will be me learning how to do a podcast. Yeah. I'll do one of my own and learn all the ins and outs. It was a really fun experience, but it was very stressful because I was literally writing episodes and then like recording them the next day. So it was kind of like almost like tele- like weekly television. Oh, yeah. And then I roped in two of my, one of my high school friends to do one of the voices and one of my college friends to do another voice and my wife to do the third. So I did the main one. It was really just like, what can I do with what I have? You know, what can I do? I with- love that. And it did really well. Yeah, it did. In the ramp up to Halloween 2020. 
it kind of went viral and it got selected by Apple to be in their curated collection. And it was perfect timing. Like it just caught the, the wave. So I, I, it got a lot of listens and got some press. And I think the entire thing, I spent $20 for the theme music and that was it. It's fantastic. So do you have any plans for future podcasts? I have plans, but that one was so exhausting. I want someone else to do the heavy lifting. Hells yeah. As someone yeah. Who, who does a podcast, it's a lot. A yeah, lot. it's it's a lot. So I do I do have a, a sequel season in mind, but I'm not going to do anything with it until I can get somebody else to kind of do the technical stuff so I can focus on the creative stuff. But but yeah, and I turned it into a screenplay. I always have multiple projects going. So like right now, I'm focusing on the book that's coming out in the fall. Of course. I don't know. Right now, I have like six other projects that I just have on a boil. Wow, that's great. Yeah, and that way, I mean, at least I don't know, uh, you know, you're creative as well, that that creative mind. For me, I like having multiple projects because sometimes I'll hit a wall with one and then I can just jump to another and never stop that creative process and I can let that one sit. So, yeah. Exactly. So this book, the book that's coming out in the fall, pretty sure you're mm-hmm. fine. How did this one come to be? Uh, I, it was something I had kicking around. I actually originally conceived it as a sequel to the first book because okay, it's to calm the fuck down. Mm-hmm. I thought it might be a good, like start a series, like do different CTFD books for different topics, but it, the original publisher wasn't really keen on it. And uh, okay. I just sat on it for a while. And then uh, a Chronicle, a, a friend there is an editor and she just reached out and said, do you have anything? And I said, well, I got this old pitch, tweak the format a little bit, but it's very similar. It's like, here's worst case health scenario. And here's why that doesn't matter. I need this so badly. I can't even tell you. I am, I am no, one of my best friends is a doctor. I feel really, really bad for him because he, he gets, he gets a lot of texts from me, a lot of very panicky texts, but I was wondering if it had anything to do, you know, the conception of it had anything to do with the fact that we are in fact in a pandemic. Yeah. I I think that's probably had something to do with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it, not the conception didn't, but the timing, I think definitely does. And I think I even mentioned it you know, you want the book to kind of live on beyond what's going on now. Of course. I, I say in the intro, it's the same thing I said in the parenting book, like this is supposed to be for fun. And chances are, you've probably found this sitting on the back of the toilet at a party. So don't use this as <laughs> instead of your doctor's advice. It's more just for like, right. You know, like information, but also fun. And, but like, like the, the parenting book, there's a section at the back where we do touch on kind of serious issues. Right. But, but yeah, it's supposed to be kind of lighthearted and let you laugh at yourself for panicking about stuff that you don't need to panic about. I love that. I need that. And I need to uh, consult it often. So <laughs> just leave it on your toilet. You know, everybody else is. for literal shits and giggles. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the tagline. <laughs> yeah. My whole, my whole, every book I've written, I'm like, it also makes a great coaster, you know? Oh, so fun. Before I let you go, I'm doing this thing this season with lightning round questions. Okay. Okay. So this is kind of a first thought that comes to mind sort of thing. Okay. Pearl jam or Nirvana. Yeah. Nirvana. Okay. Best fast food fries. Ooh, uh, I've always been partial to Wendy's fries. You know, they really do have good fries. Personally, I still choose McDonald's over Wendy's, Mm -hmm. but Wendy's does have really good fries. Yeah. And they used to, back in the day, remember they used to be like steak fries and and those were fantastic. But then they changed them. I try not to do fast food anymore. I've tried to get healthy, especially writing a health book. (laughs) (laughs) Favorite nineties fragrance. I don't know any 90s fragrances. I thought you were going to say Teen Spirit. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like old sweaty flannel with pot smoke. <laughs> Is that a fragrance? 
I mean, it was one that many people wore. So yes. I, I think we can say yes. It's the one with which I'm most familiar. Okay. Did you ever own a bucket hat? Uh, I did, but I bought it because I was at a festival and it was sunny out and I didn't, I didn't have a hat. So I bought it. I wore it at the festival and I never wore it again. Okay. Good call. Good call yeah. on that. Yeah. yeah. Protecting yourself from the sun and um, crimes of fashion. So yes. Yeah. Good. Okay. Brenda or Kelly? Kelly. Kelly. Okay. All Are we right. talking about TV characters or just names? Uh, <laughs> you're not getting the ref- the 90210 reference? Yeah, I know 90210. It's not, it's not a part of my 90s experience. It is. I did watch it, but I didn't. I'm sorry. I was not a huge fan of it. I was watching it because there's a girl I had a crush on in college that watched it all the time. So, so yeah, I just picked Kelly because I have a really good friend named Kelly. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. So it wasn't because you chose Kelly over Brenda. No, I guess okay. not. I would probably choose Luke Perry. If I had to choose somebody from <laughs> that's that cast. fair. We respect that. Okay. What was your first car? A Toyota Corolla. What year? Uh, it was 93, 94. I didn't get my first car until I was already in college. Okay. So it wasn't a piece of shit. No, it was new. We bought it new. Oh. And I, I picked a Corolla because I thought this might be the only car I can ever afford. So it's got to last. Yep. And, and so I, I drove that thing to the ground. I had it for a decade. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. Were you a latchkey kid? Oh, God. Yeah. 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 And the whole episode you did with Wit about latchkey kids, I was going, uh huh, uh huh, mm-hmm. uh huh, the whole time. Wasn't he so great in that episode? God, I love Wit Honey. Yeah. He's fantastic. He's a, he's a, just a prince of a human. Yes. And, uh, but yeah, that's why I, uh, I had to cook my own dinners. It's why I ate so many hamburgers because the hamburger is the only thing I really knew how to make. Right. This kind of relates to that. What then was your after school snack of choice? Um, I'm going to give you a really gross one. Tell me. I like the really gross ones. Those are okay, my favorite. I'll give you two. One of my go-to snacks was literally just a can of chocolate cake frosting, and I would just eat it with my finger. That sounds amazing, by the way. It was, but it also I yeah, yeah it was not healthy. And the other thing I used to do was I would take a bowl of croutons and just pour blue cheese dressing on it and eat it. That sounds like amazing, cereal. too. <laughs> sounds so good. In hindsight, I'm like, I, I should have had a heart attack by like 15. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. And, and you're the author of Pretty Sure You're Fine. I know. Well, like wow. I said, I ch- I've changed my ways. I actually exercise now. It's crazy. I know you do. You document that on your Instagram. You've like been on yeah. a health journey. Yeah. It's really weird. Like I used to say, I, I would never run unless I was being chased. Right. That's how I feel. That's how I feel about running. Yeah. But I, I think mid pandemic, again, it was like, well, I'm out of shape and uh, this isn't going anywhere. So I have a treadmill. Let me just start out slow. And I did, I started out just doing like a trot for like a half a mile. And now I'm doing 5k every day. Again, what the book I mentioned, it's like finding your own thing. Yeah, totally. Okay. Uh, film that traumatized you most as a kid. Ah, there's so many and I love them all. I could say Jaws because that's kind of everybody's, you know, I remember mm-hmm. sneaking down. I wanted, it was on TV and my parents didn't want me to see it. And then they went to bed and I snuck down and I watched it. And then I wouldn't even get in the bathtub for like a year. Okay. First concert. My first concert was Genesis Invisible Touch Tour. Shut up. Yeah. And I, I even got a t-shirt, but here's the thing. I wasn't even really a fan, but my sister who's four years older than me wanted to go. And so my mom took just both of us. They had just installed a 
uh, like a lounge for parents that was soundproof. And so oh my, my God, mom was genius. like, that's genius. Yeah, right? uh, yeah. So she just put us in this, this stadium crowd. And then she went and hung out in the lounge. Wow. Got to see Phil Collins do all the hits. <laughs> my dad is a huge Phil Collins fan, like hardcore. And um, <laughs> he got me tickets for my birthday when I was like 22 to go see Phil Collins. And I was sort of like, I mean, I like him. I know him. I know mm-hmm. all of his music, whatever. I went into the concert kind of feeling sort of indifferent. Mm-hmm. One of the best concerts I've ever seen. He's amazing. Yeah, it's really. And that's the thing. Like there's some people that just you see them live and it just changes your opinion of them. Absolutely. You know? 100%. Yeah. I, even though I wasn't a fan, I was not unentertained. You know, it was a really entertaining show. I will though say this. The first concert I went to by choice was in excess. And that wow. was a blast. I That's also took my cool. first ever girlfriend there and she was a hardcore Christian. So we were kind of doing our little like white person dance the whole mm-hmm, time mm-hmm. until devil inside came on and she just sat down. She would not dance to devil inside. No, she was that Christian. That was her protest. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I respect it. Okay. This last question is for me. Mm. Your favorite Elton John song. Oh my God. There's so many. Uh, God, that's a tough one. Elton John's big in our house, by the way. I, I love him more than anything in the whole wide world. So uh, you want to be really jealous? Yeah. My wife's mother was a manager and she managed uh, Neil Sedaka and they were that Neil went on tour with Elton. Oh my God. And so my mother-in-law and my wife, my wife was at the time she was a kid, little kid. Uh, they were like in the limo with Elton going Shut to all up. these shows on the plane. Oh and we have a photo sitting in our living room of Elton with his arm around her as a, as a kid. Stop it. Yeah. And, and so she saw him at the Troubadour, like all that stuff. <gasps> oh, so, yeah. Wow. So, so David, where's your wife? Get her, get her in here. Gonna, I need to have a conversation <laughs> uh, with her. Anyway, that's amazing. Yeah. It's that, that's the thing again, why, you know, you asked what, what I like to talk about in music. I mean, it's all around me all the time. And I like tiny dancer. I like, again, you know, I go for the singles, you know, yeah, so yeah. I like crocodile rock is a hoot. You know? Yep. It's a good one. Well, I'm just happy you're a big fan. Oh my God. Yeah. I love him so much. I have tickets to his last show in the U.S. It's going to end at Dodger Stadium Mm. as a nod to his Dodger Stadium performance way back when. It's in November 2022. Let's hope it doesn't get canceled. I'm really excited about it. So, yeah. yeah. Mm. So, David, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk about Nirvana and share all your incredible stories. I mean, you had... You had more stories than I even knew about. And I'm so thankful that you, <laughs> that you graced yeah. us with your stories. Thank you. Oh. I'm, I'm just so excited. And I'm really, really excited about pretty sure you're fine because yeah. I definitely need that in my life. Yeah. I'm, I hope you're not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> well, to the Gen X audience, I will link to all of David's stuff in the show notes so you can check them out. And again, thank you so much for your time, David. You're fantastic. Oh, thank you for having me. This has been a blast. Thank you. And of course, listeners, thank you so much for taking the time and remember to rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Uh, We have a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the Untitled Gen X podcast. And of course, we hope you keep in touch, beautiful people. Bye. Bye.